This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luca Levitz Meble. And I'm Yannick Mayen. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Greatest operating system of all time, BOS. Ooh, I'm quite excited because you only told me that you'll be talking about BOS for this week without any, saying any other word. Just said, my topic is BOS. Yeah. I'm super excited to see what we will be talking about this week. But before we start, this week we don't have follow-up. We have a small programming note. Yeah, uh, so on August 2nd, we're going to be recording an episode about Shinkai Makoto's 2016 movie Your Name, or Kimi no Nawa in Japanese. It is the highest grossing anime film and Japanese film of all time, and both myself and our mutual friend Shannon uh, have been trying to get you to watch this movie for at least two years. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be an anime fan to enjoy this movie, uh, just so you know. Uh, at the very least, you're probably going to be moved by how visually stunning it is. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie before, I recommend going in completely blind and not reading anything about it beforehand. If you're in Canada, you can find it for purchase or rental on iTunes and YouTube if you're looking for a digital version. Otherwise, you can find it on Blu-ray pretty much anywhere. Uh, and just trust me and watch the subtitled version if possible. I don't want to spoil why, uh, but we will elaborate on that in uh, that episode. Okay, meaning I should not watch the dub version. Yes. Huh. Okay, or maybe watch it twice with both versions, if I have the time. Yeah, I think you would realize watching the dub... If you watch the dub version second, I think it will be immediately obvious why. <laughs> but, like, don't make the mistake and watch the dub version first. Okay. Okay, so you suggest then dub version first and then the sub version after? No, sub version first. Ah, okay, okay, sorry. that no But, taken. like, m most people should just watch the subtitled version, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's good to know. Contrary to a lot of this anime stuff where there's a lot of elitism around like, you should always watch the subtitled version because the dub is bad. Uh, there is a more profound reason as to why I want people to watch the subtitled version. But again, I don't huh. want to spoil why. Okay, that's no, that is no taken. I'd just like to mention that we will be uh, releasing this episode, not recording this episode on August 2nd. Yes. Uh, just because you made the small uh, the small lapses there, so uh, that's in two episodes. Oh, this and is for, true. <laughs> yeah, and for the next episode, if you are like curious or like wondering, hey, this week is after dub dub. Luke Olivier and Yannick are talking about dub dub. What's happening? Don't worry, this is the next episode we'll have. So you have the whole, I guess, the programming schedule for this for this show for the month of July. Yep. Uh, I'm very excited about this entire month of uh, of podcast recordings. We've got some great topics planned, and uh, hopefully we can continue the streak into the next months. Good. Let's start with BOS. All right. So as you may have heard, macOS 11 Big Sur was announced at WWDC. This uh, is the only whoa, extent... what? Yeah, Ooh. I know. <laughs> this is the only extent to which I'll be mentioning WWDC throughout this episode, kind of. But with the macOS X era coming to an end this fall, I think it would be an interesting time to look back at what could have been. Uh, you may know that back in the late 90s, when Apple was in trouble, they had been considering the acquisition of one of two operating systems. There was Next, which belonged to Steve Jobs, which is the one they ended up going with. And there was BOS, which belonged to Jean-Louis Gasset. Uh, he was an ex-Apple executive who led advanced product development and worldwide marketing in the late 80s. So basically, retro Phil Schiller. <laughs> uh, in hindsight it's hard to argue that uh, going with next was anything but the correct decision 
but a lot of modern coverage about B and the operating system puts it into that hindsight perspective. And it's frustrating as someone who has actually used and enjoyed BOS that a lot of its charm and technical advantages aren't highlighted as much as they should. So this episode is sort of my attempt to correct that. We are not going to be talking so much about why B or BOS failed, because literally everything written about B nowadays is about that. Uh, if you're interested in hearing that story, there is a good episode of the Flashback Podcast on Relay FM, episode 6, uh, which focuses on telling that story. Uh, but I'm going to be focusing more on the uh, user-facing and technical features side of BOS. So what's BOS anyway? Uh, BOS is an operating system that was first released in 1995 by B Incorporated. Uh, it was originally developed to run on AT&T Hobbit processors. Uh, these processors never really went anywhere. Uh, they were under consideration for use in the Apple Newton hardware, but eventually that ended becoming like ARM, which is interesting. Uh, like the beginning of ARM sort of took place around the Newton hardware, which is kind of an interesting story, but outside the scope of this episode. Uh, AT&T Hobbit processors kind of got canned in 1994, uh, which was a year before... BOS came out, so they sort of had to do something <laughs> to make it work out. Uh, they refocused their development effort on targeting PowerPC processors. B shipped their own PowerPC hardware. They were called B boxes, uh, the B box workstations. Uh, they shipped them alongside the first release of BOS. Uh, B boxes had lifetime sales of 1,800 units between October 1995 and January 1997 when the product was discontinued, so it was not a very successful product. However, luckily, being on PowerPC gave them a fallback plan if their own hardware failed. BOS could also run on PowerPC Max, and if it grew to have significant enough market share, maybe B could convince Apple to try and acquire or license BOS to replace System 7 on PowerPC Max going forward. Uh, as you may remember, the Mac in the 90s kind of fumbled. They spent almost like a decade on System 7, kind of not too sure what to do for the next version of the OS. There was the Copeland project. There were a bunch of like splinter projects that made other potential Mac OS 8 versions that never went anywhere. Uh, and all of that eventually ended when they acquired Next and they consolidated everything into Rhapsody, which became the OS 10 we are using today. But yeah, needless to say, like it was clear that Apple wasn't going to go with B as an option eventually in like 96, 97. It was pretty clear like, no, Apple's not going to do anything with you guys. Uh, and at that point, B decided to port BOS to Intel. Uh, the March 1998 release, uh, R3 as it was called, was the first to run on Intel. And BOS continued to support both PowerPC and Intel architectures until the very final official release R5 in March of 2000. In 2001, BOS was acquired by Palm, uh, which was another kind of flailing company at the time, kind of like Apple, except they unfortunately had less of a future than Apple did. Uh, and some of the code from B's multimedia frameworks was used in a version of Palm OS called Palm OS Cobalt. This was supposed to be Palm OS 6. Uh, the SDKs went out to licensing partners and they were starting to make hardware for it, but no devices ever shipped with that hardware. So basically, they... Palm bought BOS for absolutely no reason, and none of BOS's technologies ended up shipping in any products, which kind of sucks. Uh, around that time, when it was sort of obvious that BOS had no future, uh, fans started developing OpenBOS, which later rebranded to Haiku, and we've mentioned that in the past a couple times on the show. Uh, funnily enough, the timing lines up, but this was completely coincidental. Uh, 
the haiku release one beta two shipped last month june 9th uh so yeah pretty recent uh and the consensus seems to be that it is incredibly polished and faithful to the bos philosophy but unfortunately like a lot of open source projects it's lacking in hardware and software support uh like it's hard to find good quality linux software so if linux has trouble getting good quality software like you're gonna have a hard time finding good quality haiku software but that's kind of the state of things for BOS. I would like to note one thing. I was surprised. I didn't know that Palm was the last owner of BOS or and be the company. Yeah. Uh, Palm Source. I don't know if you remember, but Palm split into two companies. There was like the Palm. I don't even remember what they were called, but there was like the OS company and there was the hardware company eventually. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah. Palm Source ended up being acquired by Access, which is a Japanese company that does weird Linux shit. Uh, and then they made like the Access Palm Top platform or something crazy like that, which was like this Linux-based alternative to Palm OS that also never went anywhere. And then I think oh. like all of that kind of collapsed. And then the Palm hardware side ended up getting picked up by HP, which ended up doing the WebOS stuff. And that also failed. So yeah. yeah now that you mentioned, I recall my dad used to used to have a, a palm, palm tungsten. one is the company for the hardware i forgot the uh, name yeah but i when you said palm source i do recall palm the that name and i forgot it was just the software side of things yeah huh hey 80s and 90s uh, hardware and like os companies are quite strange if you think about it these days palm os would also be a really good episode for this kind of show but uh <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but now that I think about it, maybe I'll have to add that to my note file. Yeah, you need to add it to your IEO list. Yeah. So I want to start off with multitasking. Uh, BOS is super interesting for having a huge focus on multitasking uh, for two main reasons. The first is symmetric multiprocessing, or SMP. So before processors had multiple cores on them, computer manufacturers used to put multiple processors, like actually physically multiple processors into their computers. Mm, I recall my power uh, my power Mac with multiple. I didn't add one, but I was so craving those uh, power Macs with the uh, dual sockets. Mm, even Mac Pros. Mm. Yeah, it started becoming common, commonplace on the Mac in the G3 era. Uh, but funnily enough, those 1995 B-boxes all shipped with two power PC processors. They were way ahead oh. of the curve. Wow. Uh, and the way SMP uh, machines work is they have two or more independent processors that share resources like memory and I.O. And the entire operating system was designed around supporting supporting SMP, uh, which meant that because all the software took advantage of it, things were very fast. And it gave you a level of parallelism that really wasn't there on any other kind of computer at the time. The other big multitasking feature that it had was preemptive multitasking. So the classic Mac used a model called cooperative multitasking. And what that means is when a process is done using the CPU or it's waiting for uh, disk operations to complete, for example, it's the application's responsibility to to yield control so that the process scheduler can give another process CPU time. Uh, Now, you programmers might be able to see what's wrong with this approach (laughs) what this meant in practice is if a process decided that it wanted the cpu for itself entirely or more regularly what happened is if there was a bug in your application that would actually prevent your process from yielding control 
that process would get all the CPU time. And in many cases, it might just lock up your entire computer because it's maybe in an infinite loop. Uh, so <laughs> that was less than ideal. Um, and amazingly, like it, on the Mac, this they added like this sort of semi-preemptive multitasking API in uh, OS 9. And it was kind of opt-in and kind of half-assed because it still had to support all of the legacy classic Mac apps. So it was less than ideal. And the Mac really didn't get that until OS 10. Uh, but on Windows, this was done as early as Windows 95 and Windows NT. Uh, and of course, BOS had it. Uh, so preemptive multitasking is the scheduler itself decides which process actively gets CPU time. And there's usually some guiding policy behind the scheduler that determines like, uh, usually it's like a priority queue plus like categories of, uh, are you in, uh, are you IO bound? Are you waiting for CPU time and all of that? And it gauges who gets CPU time in function of that policy. Um, and this is how like multitasking works on 99% of computer systems nowadays. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting to see stuff like SMP and preemptive multitasking, which was really more stuff that you saw on the server end of things, sort of make its way to a more workstation-focused OS and BOS. And uh, earlier I said like multitasking is a big focus of BOS, and that's true because most marketing shots of BOS would feature four to six windows on screen at once. And that was always by design because a lot of the OS is built around... Uh, interaction between applications and uh, heavy use of multitasking. And this will come up multiple times throughout the episode. Next up, I want to talk about workspaces. And this is kind of how I'm mixing together a bunch of things uh, like the tracker, which is the BOS equivalent to the finder, the desk bar, which is the equivalent to the dock in, in OSN or uh, the Windows taskbar, and uh, just general UI stuff. Um, so the tracker, as I said, it's very similar to the finder. It's very similar to the OS eight finder in reality. Um, but it was a little bit ahead of the curve and it had some really cool features. Uh, so if you right clicked on a folder in that, uh, contextual menu, you would have a submenu that would let you navigate the contents of that folder and its subfolders. So if you wanted to drill down a file system hierarchy quickly without having to double click on each subfolder, you just right click on it and use those contextual menus to drill down. And it was much, much faster, uh, which is a really cool feature and something that would probably be useful today, honestly. Uh, it had a really cool tiered open with menu. So if you right-clicked on a file and it was, let's say, a plain text file and you went into the open with menu, there were four sections in that open with menu. The first would be your preferred app for that file type. Um, the second, uh, second tier would be apps for that exact type. So plain text files, then it would be apps for the super type. So text files in general. Now this is kind of a bad example because like, I'm not sure what other text files, I guess maybe XML, like test text slash XML as a MIME type. Maybe I don't even remember if that's valid, but just to give you an idea. Uh, so it would be super type. So it would be all text files. And then at the bottom, you would have apps for any file. And generally this would be regarded, uh, this would be used for utility apps. Like if you wanted to compress a file, uh, as a zip file, for example, or open the, uh, file types, uh, preference pane. So you could customize which apps would open that in the future. Uh, that would be in the apps for any file section. Then let's talk about the desk bar, uh, the desk bar in versions prior to R5, was a column of skinny buttons in the top right-hand corner of your screen. 
Uh, the topmost button was the B menu, and this was very similar to the Apple menu on the classic Mac OS, meaning that it was a customizable menu with whatever apps and files and folders you wanted to list there, as well as quick access to recently used apps, files, and folders. Uh, this is a feature that people still miss today on OS X because uh, it was heavily used back in classic Mac days and the dock is pretty much the only, the closest replacement we had for that uh, in the OS X era. Under that, you have what's called the tray, uh, which is very similar to menu bar extras or taskbar items. Uh, basically, it's just icons that represent various system services or uh, background applications. Uh, that's where you uh, manipulate audio, uh, like your volume, uh, wireless networking if you're on Haiku, or even just like internet connection if you're on older BOS. And then under that is a stack of buttons, like I said, uh, which let you switch between all of the currently running applications. It looks like a much more, uh, much sleeker and more refined version of the dock from Next Step, if you've seen that before. Uh, kind of fused together with all of the concepts of uh, the menu bar and the taskbar and uh, Mac and Windows, respectively. Uh, in R5, that's sort of like when uh, BOS's popularity on Windows was a was at its peak. And uh, in an attempt to be more approachable to Windows users, the desk bar could be configured to look more like the macOS menu bar or the Windows taskbar. So it would be a large horizontal bar at the top of the screen. Uh, and you, if you look at R5 screenshots, a lot of people have that in that configuration. Just because in terms of screen usage, it's a lot easier to have one horizontal bar at the top of the screen than this weird rectangle in the top right corner of your screen and then, like, if you stretch your window out to the full screen, half of it is covered up. It's like, it was just an awkward design. I think it looks very good, but it's very awkward design for when you're actually trying to do things, unless you have a very large screen, which you didn't back in those days. So I'm not sure what they were thinking, uh, but it looks cool. One of the big features that uh, UI-wise the BOS had that made it stand out and that there were even extensions on the Mac to... Uh, to replicate that in the Mac OS was its tabbed windows. So the title bar in BOS is a tab that's anchored to the left side of the window. And the tab is a large rectangular strip that is only as long as the title of the window itself. And what's neat about this tab is you can move it. So if you hold down the option key and drag the title, the title bar tab, uh, you can move it from left to right or along the width of the window. Now you might be saying, what the hell am I going to use that for? Like, is the, is it just like a fidget toy that I can use on my windows for fun? Well, yes, yes you can do that. Um, but that's not the only thing you can do with it. You can actually just do that on a bunch of windows that are stacked on top of each other and actually arrange them in a tabbed window group. Uh, if you're using Haiku, now there's like a bunch of convenience features that you can just like option drag windows on top of each other. And this happens automatically, which is much smarter than uh, how, how you had to do it back in the day. Um, but yeah, you, you can just like arrange windows from completely different applications and arrange them in this sort of weird tabbed window group. And this is long before tabs were commonplace in document-based applications like text editors or web browsers. This is like mid-90s, right? We didn't have that yet. Uh, so it was really neat concept and it really facilitated multi-application workflows, which again kind of the point with BOS. The next thing I want to talk about is something that is the ancestor to a lot of uh, tech that we hear about these days, uh, and it's called replicants. Uh, replicants is a terrible name for what this is, but 
you'll get the point pretty quickly. Uh, replicants are effectively remotely hosted views from another application. Uh, mm. So if you're an application developer, you can say, I want this view in my application window to be replicantable, which is not a word, uh, but that's <laughs> the word they use in their documentation because they had to go with a stupid replicant name. Uh, replicantable views have a little hand icon in the bottom right corner that you can grab onto and you can drag them onto replicant container views. So here are some examples of apps that vend replicants on Haiku. Uh, I couldn't find a list of what they were on BOS, but I think most of these were also the case on BOS. Uh, Clock, Calculator, Activity Monitor, Workspace Switcher. These are all little things. You grab the little hand in the bottom right corner, you drag them onto a replicant container. Well, what's a replicant container? Well, the biggest one and the one that everyone has is the desktop. Uh, so this effectively was confabulator or dashboard widgets a decade ahead of time. You could just drag parts of applications randomly onto your desktop and have them anchored there. Uh, once you drag a replicant onto a replicant container, that portion of the app will continue to run and update as long as the replicant container continues to exist. Uh, so like you can shut down the app and there's still an instance of the app that is running in the background, keeping that replicant alive as long as the container view exists. It's a really interesting model. Uh, it enables a lot of cool shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sounds like a uh, like a power user uh, widget system. Yeah, well, from the nineties. A lot of BOS features are very much like power user focused, and we'll go more into that a little bit later. But yeah, it, it's kind of cool like that. Uh, this kind of invented the idea of like. Like if if you had like a like this didn't actually happen because people didn't actually buy computers and run BOS on them, which is kind of part of the problem. But mm -hmm. uh, let's say you had an application that was made uh, specifically for your business or something like that. Well, you could have like a replicant uh, container column somewhere in your application where if you needed to have like a calculator on standby, you could just drop it there and you had a calculator standing by in your application at all times. Uh, and then you could just like despawn it when you don't need it anymore. So yeah, it, it's kind of an interesting concept. It there's a little bit of an open docky feel to it, which is kind of what some people were up to in the mid '90s. Uh, whether those ideas were good or not is not 100% clear yet. But yeah, it, it was an interesting concept. I think like 95% of people only used it for dash uh, for like desktop widgets, more or less there wasn't really much of a point to embedding them in other applications because I don't think there was really any way for the applications to cross-communicate with each other. They were just like views from another app sitting there. Yeah, it's not like a technology like XPC where it can be both ways. Yeah, and it, it's kind of interesting because like nowadays I almost think of these like app extensions which are literally also remotely hosted views from an app extension on iOS uh so like but uh, like I don't think applications can say spawn a replicant from x application like it has to be a user invoked uh action that actually causes it to go there mm -hmm. and so like stuff like the share sheet couldn't actually work if you tried to implement it with replicants because that doesn't have an API. It has to be the user drags it there. So it, it's kind of an awkward system, but it's a very good idea. And in practice, it worked quite well. Uh, so it it was like at least a proof of concept for the technology that would eventually come in useful uh, many, many years later, which again is kind of the theme of this episode. <laughs> so yeah, that takes care of the workspace station. 
Now we're going to go into the big one, B file system. Does anyone have a bell? Ding. Ding. B file system is where so much of the innovation in BOS lies. Uh, it's a 64-bit capable journaling file system that in itself is not particularly noteworthy. What is noteworthy about it is its heavy usage of extended file attributes. And I'm just going to describe BOS MailKit, which is the suite of APIs and technologies around email. Emails are just files. Like the content of the email is the content of the file and all of the metadata of the file is uh, of the email is saved in 15 email specific extended attributes. Mailboxes are just folders. And you might be saying mail messages inside of mailboxes have metadata that is specific to email that is not going to show up if I open a folder in the tracker, right? Well, no, you can, uh, like mailboxes can define their own uh, default column arrangement. And they can say, oh, well, these are the extended attributes that are relevant to mailboxes, which are folders of mail messages. And it looks like a mail client. Automatically, you didn't have to do anything. You're just using the default file browser. What? Emails are therefore bound to the same restrictions as anything else in the file system. That means you can have up to eight exabytes of storage of email storage if you want, uh, which good luck finding an email client that supports up to eight exabytes of emails. Not very many of them. And this kind of leads me to the interesting idea behind what this allows in terms of the decomposition of software. There isn't technically a mail app on BOS. It's composed of multiple apps. There's a message viewer, there's a message composer, and there's a mail daemon that knows how to send and receive messages and store them in the file system. This kind of file system usage was actively encouraged by the platform and it decoupled certain parts of applications design. It incentivized smaller apps to do one thing well with a given file type. So contacts is the same way. Uh, in I think they're called people in, uh, in BOS speak. There's a folder called people in your home directory where all of your contacts live. Uh, and tracker just displays your list of, contact, of contacts naturally in the file browser because it knows that there is a file type called contact and it has these extended attributes and this folder is a folder of contacts and therefore I'm going to show you the extended attributes that are relevant to contacts. You have one or many contact sync, de sync daemons that can talk to uh, NLDAP server or LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever. Like, I, I don't know, who cares at that point? And then the contact card viewer can also be a separate application. Music, same thing. Your list of tracks is all a folder and tracker with its own column arrangement. Your MP3 player that you have to, uh, to play the actual track file can be separate from the MP3 metadata editor, which like if we go way back to like the Winamp days and the MacAmp days and all before iTunes, that was actually the regularly how things were managed on the Mac back in the day. You had, um, I don't even remember the name of the app, but you, you had separate metadata editors and players. Um, that sort of went away because people didn't like that. Um, but in, in BOS, this is still a very natural thing that can happen. And because everything is just a file, you can just move them. You can store them however you want. You can use whatever hierarchy that makes sense to you to organize your files. Uh, so it's pretty great. 
there's a command line search tool called Query that allows for rich search queries. And there is a user-facing GUI in the find dialog box, which looks a lot like, um, well, like the the classic Mac find dialog box, which eventually got turned into the UI that people use for smart folders and all of that stuff in a lot of Apple apps today. Uh, Live Query has existed in 1995, which were smart folders a decade before smart folders. Uh, and again, all of this was enabled by the rich metadata and the indexing that took place because of the B file system. All of this file system is exposed via the tracker app and uh, the file types control panel. And you don't even need to be a developer to make use of extended attributes. There is a full tutorial in the Haiku uh, user's manual on how to use BFS uh, extended attributes to build yourself a searchable database for a DVD collection with rich metadata without writing a single line of code. And it looks wow. really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's quite interesting that uh, this usage of the file system for everything, which kind of like goes down that everything you save on the file system is less than a file, more than kind of a type of record like in database speech, right? Because yeah. you don't need to have like a Let's say uh, you need to only need to store your binary file like your text file and then have a record pointing to it or more or less what is iTunes these days is like uh, a database pointing to files on this file system, but in its own container. What's really interesting about like the contact support in original BOS, I don't know about Haiku because I haven't looked at it. Uh, so this may have changed because honestly, it makes less sense for the modern world, but uh, the way it was in Haiku, uh, sorry, in original BOS was people in your contacts database were zero byte files with no content in the file. Now you might think like, why? Well, because I just need a record for my extended attributes. I don't care right. about the content of the file, which is fine until you go into a world where everyone is trading V cards and now you are sending them zero byte files with nothing in it instead of V cards. So I think like, Probably Haiku at least has like a like the file content equal to a V card representation of itself or something to that effect because it would be crazy if they didn't do that. But back in the day, it was literally a zero byte file that was like just I need a record in this database, which is super strange, but it worked. Yeah, and the other thing, uh, the other thing I would say a bit weird from what you describe is exactly kind of related to those zero byte uh, files is that because I guess all the attributes can be customized. You kind of need to define your own quote-unquote standard. Like I'm sure there's some attributes that are from BOS itself, right? Uh, yeah. For, for mail and stuff so that the uh, tracker app can build UI and columns correctly. But let's say you decide to have your own file format and all of that. And if you want to have a great adoption of that, you need to tell everybody, hey, here's my... Here's the key of my custom attribute. Go look at it, and then you'll find the data you look you're looking for. Yeah. So I think the way this worked in original BOS was that every MIME super type had a bunch of extended attributes that were defined for them. So like mm. text files are a bad example, but let's say audio files. Like what are the things that would apply to a lot of audio files, and they would define them at the audio level. So if you're making an audio app, even if you're making it for a new format that doesn't exist yet, you have because to support it's this. A, audio uh, super type it'll automatically like inherit that um so yeah th there's a level of some smartness that was done there uh otherwise it just piggybacks on the typical mime type system and then like you can, your application can register uh extended attributes for a mime type uh, and all of this is customizable in the file types control panel uh but yeah like you can do it and 
Yeah, that, that's the thing is if you're inventing new file types, you're going to have to standardize with other people. There's no getting around it. Uh, unfortunately, because BOS was not very popular and there was not a lot of software made for it, that was never really a problem that took place. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess it's a good problem to have or not to have because, yeah. It's a really great idea. It's just it was never big enough to be an issue. <laughs> so it took about seven years for the Mac to start getting these kinds of features. Uh, Tiger introduced Spotlight and extended file attributes to OS X on top of HFS+. Plus. Ding. Uh, OS X kind of reached parity with the user-facing search features of BOS with Spotlight. Uh, extended file attribute uh, usage seemed to have been mostly reserved for system features by Apple and were never really pushed towards third-party developers as it was on BOS. Or when they did, it was kind of ambiguous because sometimes I, I remember there was some drama early on where uh, if you opened a file and texted it and saved it, a bunch of like any non-Apple extended file attributes would be deleted from the file, which Ouch. is kind of a fuck you to people who... <laughs> who try to use that technology. So I don't know. It's kind of weird. Um, Finder never really took advantage of any extended attributes beyond the ones that were uh, used by Apple system features and nobody else really used them. Um, but it's kind of at the base of a lot of other system features like uh, quarantine or uh, gatekeeper like that uses extended file attributes. I think there is some usage of them in time machine and uh there's another one, but I don't remember what. Um, oh, uh, Finder Labels. Uh, that oh, was previously yeah. a resource fork, I think, on Classic Mac, and now it's an extended attribute. Uh, so yeah, there, like it's not really used for anything aside from system features, which is unfortunate. But not so, I'm not surprised, though. Like uh, I can see the good world that uh, BOS was trying to build there, but I can imagine that if they got more adoption than they did add... In the end, I I would be surprised that people could do nefarious things with those. Mm, maybe. Yeah, I would be surprised. There's like ways to exchange data that you might not be expecting and stuff like that. Oh well, yeah, but like, <laughs> yeah, I was more excited. Like you could abuse the system maybe more dangerously that uh, people have might have actually think while building this system. But the flexibility sounded interesting to say the least. Yes. So, why am I bringing all of this Mac stuff up? Well, <laughs> okay, that's a quite physical question for tonight. <laughs> yes. Well, get get ready. Uh, so, as you may know, following the success of the iPad, Apple tried to de-emphasize hierarchical file systems on the Mac. Uh, there seemed to be a belief at some time within Apple that users are either too stubborn or too stupid to understand how a file system works. And the bulk of users just dump things on the desktop. Uh, and the iOS model, which kind of sort of blossomed out of the iPad more so than the iPhone, was to make documents children of the apps that created them. It's not a perfect model, but it is a much simpler model to understand conceptually. Uh, and for a while, Apple was kind of pushing for a similar model through the usage of document pickers on App Launch. You can see this in iWork, among other things. Uh, I think the iLife apps are also like this. And automatically saving in the background for the user instead of putting saves in user's explicit control. Uh, a lot of people complained about this direction, and the Mac has kind of loosened up on this kind of thing. Uh, and funnily enough, iOS kind of gained a little 
escape path back to a traditional hierarchical file system via the Files app, which was introduced in iOS 11. So my conclusion for the B file system is if you're comfortable in a hierarchical file system, the B file system was probably the most practical hierarchical file system ever made at a user feature level. Like if you think about it very quickly, like I, I think this might have changed a bit uh, with Big Sur, according to things I've heard on this week's ATP, which I was listening to before we came here to record. But for the most part, when we upgraded to APFS, we felt zero difference from what we where we were with HFS+. There was no big feature gain from changing file systems. And I think that was kind of by design at first anyway, because they kind of didn't want users to have to care that they changed file systems. But it's hard to really justify why we made the switch to APFS right now, aside from performance and technical arguments. Uh, BFS had so many user features that were built on top of it that it makes a really compelling case for why you should be excited about the B file system. You had one consistent interface to organize and browse every piece of data on your computer instead of having to adjust to the idiosyncrasies of each application's main list view. Uh, or what happens sometimes is recreating project hierarchies across the databases of multiple apps if you're using database-based apps. Uh, so if you have like uh, like two or three apps, for, let's say creative apps like uh well, most of them use the file system, which is kind of inconvenient. But let's say you have like a database of photos in one app and a database of music in one app and a database of movies in another app. So I'm basically describing iLife. <laughs> uh, if you have an iMovie project that uses stuff from your iTunes library and your iPhoto library, uh, you might be tempted to create, let's say, a playlist for your project and an album for your project. And then you're going to be using those two uh, lists of entities from within your uh, your iMovie project. And you're going to be like recreating like this project folder in all of these different database-based apps uh, or things that masquerade as database-based apps because technically iMovie is file-based, but whatever. Uh, so you're doing a lot of work there that would be simpler if you just did everything directly on the file system and you just created one folder for your project and you dumped all of your assets directly into that folder like that's organized you don't have to do the organizing work three times in different apps uh, it gave you a ton of flexibility to organize files in a way that makes sense to you while also giving you power tools to create queries in a way that their real location on disk doesn't really matter um, so like earlier i mentioned uh your mail messages are uh placed in folders which are which can be mailboxes you can drag your mail messages far out of that mailbox and you can put them literally anywhere because actually what really matters is the query that checks for messages that are in your inbox uh which is the live folder uh, the smart folder that represents your inbox in reality uh, and what I find most exciting, of course, is in modularized software in a much more natural way than other failed experiments of the 90s, like OpenDoc. Uh, like the modularization that I mentioned that is possible with contacts, with email, with music, is much more natural to the user where you are mix and matching applications that do one thing but do different things than OpenDoc, which is like, I am embedding an entire application into this for no fucking reason. Uh, and it, like people still today have, have trouble justifying why that was a thing that we needed 
And Microsoft's kind of trying it right now uh, with, I think, their Office 365 stuff. And I'm very excited to see if that ever does anything at all that is useful because I'm not convinced it is. Um, but like at least that level of software modularization was pragmatic and it let you assemble a workflow that was uniquely yours. And it was really exciting to be able to do that and mix and match apps from various vendors. So now we're going into my conclusion. And this is where you got to buckle up. I'm buckle up. Okay. So there are some interesting common elements between Next and BOS's operating systems that were in consideration for becoming the future of the Mac. In both cases, they were the result of taking teams with undeniable taste, who had previously nailed the personal computer UI with a Mac, and putting them to work on a different problem, making workstation UIs better. And what I mean by workstation UIs is if you've seen old video of like SGI machines or uh, scientific research workstations, uh, they were using really old versions of Unix with primitive X Windows system. Generally, they're using like TWM or uh, like um, Motif. Uh, there was, uh, I forget the other one. I, I want to say Irix, but that's not quite it. But there are a bunch of these like super clunky Unix workstation UI frameworks that nobody liked and were super ugly and were very much products of like the late 80s that never evolved. Uh, Next to me always had this kind of German utilitarian design that sort of paid respects to its Unix heritage while also improving on the user experience and raising the bar for a third-party app UI consistency by making the next step frameworks, which would eventually become Cocoa. And BOS is much more about taking the core philosophies behind the design of the classic Mac OS and applying lessons that were learned in the last 10 years of computing to enable more effective workflows based on real use cases. The classic Mac UI at the time hadn't really evolved significantly since being unveiled. I mean, I've used every version of the Mac OS uh, back when we had like when I had access to an SE30 and a 512K Mac, I spent weeks just downloading every version of the Mac OS and trying them one by one. And I can tell you, from one to seven, there is not much going on. Uh, <laughs> like the most exciting thing to look at is the control panel window, and like aside from that, not much has changed. Uh, like seven added color. Ooh. This, uh, this kind of reminds me when, uh, I first played with an original Mac and I recall texting you after like, Oh, it's so fun. I did nothing. <laughs> I think I wrote some text in the text editor and that's it. I played with a menu and I was like, okay, I think I uh, played with everything that was included in the system. Yeah. So what's really interesting about BOS relative to the Mac is that the big advances were in two systems that only really evolved after the original 1984 Macintosh. So the first, obviously, is multitasking. Uh, multitasking was bolted onto the classic macOS, first with utilities like Switcher, then officially via MultiFinder, and then later as a part of the core operating system. But as I mentioned, cooperative multitasking, so your mileage may vary. So like uh, trying to have kids, uh, I forgot to tell you that, it's like uh, trying to have kids share uh, toys when they're young. It's like, mm, not going to happen. Pretty much. And then the other side of uh, BOS's evolution is the file system. And like 
the reality is you couldn't really evolve the file system as quickly as you wanted to on the Mac because so much of the user base at the time was still booting off of floppy disks or hard drives with very limited storage space. And any features you would add to the file system would eat into available space on their drives, so they wouldn't want it necessarily. Um, and what I find actually quite interesting about uh, the B file system, which I neglected to mention earlier, is that the storage occupied by the file system headers was a minimum of two megabytes, which meant you couldn't even f format a floppy with BFS. It just wouldn't work. Uh, and like they were confident enough that enough people were going to have CD-ROMs and bigger hard drives that they would not need to rely on floppy disks as much for storage, at least storage that relies on the B file system. And I think that was the right call, obviously. Uh, and what they gained by doing that was all of these next-gen features that wouldn't really become a part of modern operating systems until seven to 10 years later, uh, which is really interesting. And some of those features don't even really exist nowadays, even now. So funnily enough, multitasking and file system, those are also the main advantages that the Mac has over the iPad today through richer multitasking with overlapping windows and foundation level ubiquitous hierarchical file system. So my argument for this episode uh -oh. is maybe Apple should stop thinking of the Mac as a personal computer because increasingly that's the iPad's market. Maybe Apple should start thinking of the Mac as a workstation and have that inform the design of the operating system. Like I said at the start of the show, it's hard to deny that Apple made the right choice in going forward with the next acquisition. Uh, it's entirely plausible that Apple would have gone out of, out of business if they had chosen to go with BOS. Uh, <laughs> even though, like, at the time, and even looking at it now, BOS was arguably the more Mac-like product in appearance and philosophy. Uh, Next is very un-Mac-like at times. Uh, probably the most Mac-like thing about it is Steve Jobs. <laughs> so it was kind of a weird pick at the time, and I thought it was the wrong pick back in the day. Of course, hindsight 2020, it's like, okay, Apple is the giant, most giant company in the world. So, I mean, it was the right choice, but BOS seemed cool. But looking at how Mac power users reacted to the reveal of Big Sur, I think it's time for Apple to start taking some inspiration from OSs like BOS on where the Mac should go instead of going for an awkward platform convergence with the iPad like it seemed they're doing. That's your big conclusion for tonight, huh? That was not the plan going into this, this episode, by the way. I was literally just going to talk about BOS, and then I was like, wait a second. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, and I'm surprised. I'm quite surprised. So was that it? Yep. Yes, it was. Okay. You don't have anything to say? You're not shocked um, and... Okay. You're not outraged? Coming from new... No, that's the problem. That's why I'm not <laughs> outraged. I'm kind of used to those arguments throughout the years. You're always like saying that, yeah, the iPad should have a real file system. I think you... like. You were the person that I know the, that was the most vocal about the files app that I, as uh, from the files app uh, about it being kind of a half solution to a problem that we already have a good solution, which is what we have on the Mac. So but I, I'm that, surprised. That's not my stance, though. My, my stance is not like the iPad benefits from having a file system. I, I don't actually engage with the file system because it's not good uh, on the iPad. And like my argument is... If the iPad is the personal computer, it doesn't need to have a hierarchical file system because people are using it today and are comfortable with its lack of a hierarchical file system and they're doing just fine. It's more approachable to the mass market user if it doesn't have a file system. It's power users who get angry. Uh, 
and I, I am a power user, but at the same time, like, I just don't like using hierarchical file systems on an iPad. It doesn't feel good. And I think not having the file system is the correct way to do the iPad. And obviously... Oh, like, yeah. So that's that's why I, I misrepresented you there So about that. Yes. Yeah. I'm of the Scott Forstall mind that the file system should go nowhere near iOS. Uh, just like I thought Pointer should go, shouldn't go anywhere near the iOS or and all of that stuff. I think there's a certain purity to what they were trying to do with the original iPad. And obviously, Apple is not doing that. Um, but as they are trying and trying and trying to push it further and further, uh, push the iPad further and further into the Mac's territory, uh, the Mac's reason to exist is smaller and smaller. And what's left for the Mac to do really well that the iPad doesn't do is be a workstation. And that is both in terms of well, I was going to say processing power, but the iPads are faster than the Macs right now. So, yeah, I, I guess I guess we're in, you're going to another like WWDC topic zone. Yes, uh, if we assume that Apple Silicon is going to be sticking with the same uh, power consumption categories that current Intel Macs are, uh, the performance the watt is going to be insane, and we are going to have much much faster Macs that are going to be much better suited to. Uh, high, heavier duty workloads and also specialized workloads through stuff like uh, ML cores and all of that stuff. So why not take advantage of that extra power by giving people a fucking workstation operating system instead of trying to recreate the iPad experience on the Mac, which is what they at least visually are trying to do with Big Sur. No, it's it's fair. It's fair. I'm eager to see. I'm also surprised again uh, that uh, you were saying you were talking about the dub dub, and I feel that this uh, it was historical kind of recollection of BUS ending on that conclusion is a good way to not talk about dub dub, but talk about dub dub and all the latest changes. So yeah, that's no, that's nice. It's how I get to talk about WWDC without explicitly addressing that's <laughs> the fair. things that were talked about at WWDC. That is fair. Perfect. And on that note, let's wrap it up. So to find, I guess I'm assuming that you'll uh, find some, you'll have some show links in the show notes, especially talking about BOS and it's all nice features because I am, I'm quite eager to see some screenshot of all the features you describe. So not- yeah, uh, there there is even a book that was written about the B file system. I think it's like practical file system design huh. with the BFS or something like that. I'm trying to find a PDF of it because it was previously on the uh, on the b website and and it seems to be a 404 right now but if i can try if if i can find a copy of that i will try to put it in the show notes because it looks really interesting uh there's also a bunch of articles with regards to uh like looking back at the bos file system that were were incredibly useful uh, to make this episode and the haiku manual which is also really nice to see like like they've recreated the bos manual except everything works on a new os that was made in 2020 which is kind of crazy so uh yeah Nice. So I'm sure you'll be able to find some of those links if Yannick is able to find all the documentation he was mentioning uh, that might be uh, dead on the internet. But if he does, you'll be able to find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 139, so 139. If you want to go through our back catalog of episodes, you can find it at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the latest news about the podcast on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at Lucanoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at... Sakarina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. Don't forget, in two weeks, WWDC, and in four weeks, we'll be 
going through your name. See you in two weeks.